Welcome to another edition of Nipe Story. I'm your host, Kevin Wachiro. We're changing tact on this edition. Usually we feature a piece of short story fiction. But in memory of Binyavaranga Huanaina, a Nipe Story contributor, a fellow writer, fellow queer and friend who passed away on the 21st of May, we pay our respects by sharing this tribute by fellow writer, friend and former Kwani editor, Billy Kahora. I had two first meetings with Binyavanga Wainaina. The first one was when he joined Carrie Francis House, CF, in Lenana School as an incoming fifth former in the old A-level system. Binya turned CF into the house that produced prize-winning house plays in a rugby-crazed school. I was a third former, part of the first newly introduced 844 class, and he cast me in one of his theatre productions. The next year, my fourth form class and his sixth form class became existential enemies, fighting in corridors for control of the house, with one of my fourth form friends engineering a bullying scenario that ultimately led to the expulsion of one of his best friends. The two of us, however, continued exchanging books to read. He still cast me in the house play, and CF won the prize again. Binyavanga is the only Lenana schoolboy to have snuck out of school to present a play at the Alliance Francaise in the city. He did not tell the organizers that he was still a schoolboy, and when his play was announced as the winner, his major fear was that the school administration would find out. I met Binyavanga Wainaina again in 2005, at his home from home in the Java Mamangina coffee house. Now he was founding editor at Kwani, Kane Prize winner and larger than life. I'd sent him a short story called The Applications from South Africa where I was studying and he loved it. When I returned to Kenya, we met and he asked me what I thought about Kwani. There were already two issues out of the journal. I blurted out that it was great, but it needed to capture the post-2002 moment that had voted out a Kenyan 24-year political regime more. I was fresh from journalism school and obsessed with creative non-fiction. I thought there was a lot the form could do with all that was being unearthed in the post-Moy Kenya commissions of inquiry of the time. Genga music was blowing up the airwaves. The comedy trio Ridiculous were gods. Sheng, the urban patois, was Kenya's new muse. I did not realize that this was really an informal job interview of sorts. The next time we met, he told me about Kenyan central bank whistleblower, David Munyakane. Could I write a creative non-fiction based on this? And could I accompany him to hang out with Ukoflani Mau Mau, musicians and poets whom he thought were the most talented wordsmiths in Kenya at the time, and the country's equivalent to the Wu-Tang clan? He was generous that way in opening up the Kwani space for me. When I was finding my feet... He was the only one who did not take my criticism as a threat. He willed me into writing Munyake's story that would eventually become a book. He invited me to edit the next Kwani issue 3, and we called it the Sheng issue. I quickly learned that everything with Binyavanga happened at warp speed, but only starting in the afternoon and going deep into the night, an outright rejection of the Kenyan 9-to-5 ethos. He sat and started working in cafes from 4pm, in those days, the Kwani office was at Queensway House and the favoured Trattoria, an Italian restaurant with outdoor seating. Work was meeting different people and talking Kenya 
and then the world. At this time, he smoked sportsman's cigarettes incessantly. He continually drank coffee and then moved to Tasca Beer. There, the Kwani Journal was commissioned and strategies were laid out to take over the world. He conducted interviews and ranted against anyone in Kenya he thought was policing who and what writers and literature could be. He obsessed about Polish writer Rizard Kapuczynski's racism. He asked me again and again what I thought had happened between fourth formers and sixth formers at Lenano School. He liked to work into the early hours of the morning and resurface again in the very earliest at lunchtime. And then another cycle would begin. Even after having become perhaps the most visible new writer in Kenya after winning the Kane Prize, he spent most of his time in these years talking about the works of others. For such a confident and brash person on the outside, he could be very reticent about his own work. When stories that he'd written quietly emerged somewhere, it was always without notice, even for those who he spent a lot of time with. But the glimpses of him at work taught me how unserious I was about my own work. He was excruciatingly exacting with himself, much more so than with many writers he published. With his close friends, he was harsh, as he was with himself. He would cut links with even the most talented if they showed too much laziness. The Kwani production process was an exceedingly brutal one. He could decide at a whim that the look of the full journal was terrible and we had to start again. Many fell by the wayside, including close friends, but he also immediately recognised a good idea. When we were struggling with a look for the Kwani book series, exhausted, I half-jokingly said the series should look like the Kwanini series. That's it, he said. He was generous to a fault with so many artists, not only writers. He would champion someone's work both artistically and practically in incredible ways. Nothing was impossible for a writer like him. I remember him calling me to ask me how we could sort out a visa for a Nigerian writer, A. Igoni Barrett, to come to Kenya for a writing residency. Or Ugandan newspaper columnist, Kalundi Serumaga, telling me how Binyavanga had found him a small grant to help him continue building his art centre. Or Binya, housing a Ugandan poet who was a refugee in Kenya. He also not only instinctively understood how narrative worked, but more importantly, he had an unfailing knack for understanding the person who was writing it and how they could improve on a piece for Kwani. And yet for all his kindness, his aesthetic standard was so fixed that he would never compromise. He did not mind being cruel if necessary. And so he made many enemies, particularly with those who he found in the literary and cultural scene who had attained status, the old-fashioned Kenyan way, through networks of privilege and informal social circuit. He could not stand what he described as the textbook and compass literary mafia and their boiled Sukuma wiki way of thinking. Binyavanga was terribly funny when he chose to be, but also could be a bad sport. When we quarrelled, he shouted, You, eight for fours! Social media at times brought out the worst in him. It was the perfect space for fueling a nature that could become obsessively pugilistic about everything. 
When there was no one to talk to and rant with in the early hours of the morning, it was there for him, a space he let it all out. In his healthier days, no one was as hard-working. He was quietly writing another novel draft. By the time he finished One Day I Will Write About This Place, he destroyed several fiction manuscripts. Binyavanga's creative impulse was his driving force, and he very much made his own yardstick for cultural value. He famously rejected recognition as a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, while through his work as Kwani editor, financing a studio for Ukoflani Mau Mau and the hit songs Angalia Sa and Mashairi. He was the emotional force behind 24 Nairobi and the only supporter of an unknown photographer, Nick Isenberg, who appeared on his doorstep wanting to produce a collection of photography and writing about the city featuring yet-to-be-known names such as Boniface Mwangi and James Morioki. Meanwhile, he was the only Kenyan writer to have appeared on Oprah. There will always be debates about the founding of Kwani, who, where, when. What about all the others who were there? In truth, no one spent as much time as he did getting things off the ground. He was the vocal point who buzzed between the moving parts that got it up and running. The writers. The small fledgling office. The board. The donors. The international writing community. They had grown-up jobs. Other valid concerns. Family. For Binya, Kwani was all those things and more. He was the one that harangued writers to submit their stories to Kwani for the Kane Prize. From this needling, Yvonne Awar sent him a story called Weight of Whispers, a week before the deadline. He harassed the whole Kwani office day and night to get it published and sent to London. He told me when he saw the story, he just knew. When he took up a position at Union College in upstate New York, Kwani had ballooned into a journal, a literary festival, a Kwanini series, a book series, and a monthly open mic. And he let Kwani breathe by leaving me to make my own mistakes as the new editor. He was unfailingly generous with his time when I asked. He continued to open doors in those years after he had left. When we met, it was always like the old days. We spoke long and deep into the night. He drank coffee, smoked cigarettes, and then would share beers. He'd always have new obsessions from the Leakies and their legacy in Kenya to Nedi or Korafo before she became well known. His advice was uncanny. Nobody understood African literature and cultural shifts better. He anticipated the Afrofuturism boom years before it happened. He recognized the genius of just a band when they were only known by a few in Nairobi and flew them to New York to be part of a mini festival. He'd called me to tell me about amazing photographer Umsingi Siasi before anyone else was talking about him. As How to Write About Africa continued to generate critical attention, as one day was named a 2011 New York Times notable book, and he became a constant demand as a speaker internationally, Binyavanga remained a restless artist and his creative spirit an ever-wandering one. He was seriously considering a shift to become a curator rather than a writer before he fell ill in 2016. And he started writing a fantasy novel in Germany at the Dad Fellowship in 2017. 
The first stroke happened weeks after it submitted the final manuscript of One Day I Will Write About This Place, years ago, and came as a complete shock to all his friends. It was as if he'd expended all his magnificent energy in the book. And in true Binyavanga fashion, he could not quite decide what the book was. It was part memoir, part travelogue, and part political rant. But read again the brilliant section about Kime, the Babel of his childhood for all who did not speak English. In one day, those who know him well can detect the Nakuru boy who was for many still uncomfortable in Nairobi. And alongside that, the assured traveller who understood people so well that his character portraits were unforgettable. And yet, there's a part of himself he had not given to that book. When he published the lost chapter and came out publicly as gay, it opened up both him as a person and his writing. One day was made visible as a queer narrative. In the years that followed, he seemed more comfortable with himself, given less to ranting and open to new experiences. He went to live in Tuba, Senegal, because he wanted to study their old trading ways. He fell in love with Nigeria and spoke about making Jobag his home because of the freedoms it offered the queer community that Nairobi did not. He wanted to travel on the continent to write a book of essays about new obsessions such as the evangelist movement in Mpumalanga, South Africa and Islam in Senegal. For several years, he worked on getting the idea of a new digital genre series off the ground. These were the things that drove him. Even if he'll be known most outside the literary world for his hair and his style, as a radical who dared to be different, he will be remembered by many for his great spirit, his bravery, his outspokenness. But most of all, he needs to be remembered for the writing. How to write about Africa has eaten much of that recognition and still stuns me how limited the recognition of his writing Avro is. In 2017, Achal Prabala and Isaac Otidi Amuke archived much of this online. Here we can all read and remember and hopefully now the world will be able to access his broad range. These last years were hard. Binyavanga loved to talk because this is how he thought. He talked himself into a thought. And without the ability to rant, he wilted creatively. And yet how his body held firm with all the ailments he was suffering from was nothing short of a miracle. There was a constant searching look in his eyes as if he could not comprehend what had happened to him. But last August, when I visited him with Ivona War, he seemed happier than ever. We shared literary gossip. I brought him news of old friends that he had not seen for a long time. I could not remember Abinya who let others talk and just listened. But now, he had little choice. That magnificent energy had continued catching up with itself, and his body seemed to have shrunk. The confused, searching look was gone and he thanked us for making him laugh, something he had not done for a long time. I will miss him. Rest in peace, Binyavanga Wainaina. Ah!
That tribute was written by Billy Kahora.